0: That was Christ's final cry on the cross before he died. And last week, we learned that his death was the perfect sacrifice. Jesus is the only one who can solve your big sin problem, and he solved it with his blood. Remember, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus, amen. But what if, what if that was the end of the story? What if we could only look back at the cross? What if Jesus was just a martyr? What if he died? And that was it. Well, then Jesus might have been a good man, but ultimately a failure. And there'd be no salvation for us. There'd be no hope of eternal life. Now, to those in the church who were doubting the resurrection, Paul actually wrote these words. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So, if Jesus is just a dead man, it makes no sense for you and I to be here today. You see, lots of other religions, they've got good teachings, they've got gatherings, scriptures, even miracles. So, what is it that makes Christianity unique? What's so special about Jesus? What's the resurrection? Only Jesus lives. Only once did a person undergo death and then come out the other side by his own power. And he didn't just come back to this life and ordinary earthly life, but to an eternal life. This man let evil do its worst to him, and he still came out on top. And this is at the heart of the gospel. This is the good news of Christianity. Without this, we have no news to tell. In his book, The Case for the Resurrection, atheist-turned-Christian apologist Lee Strobel writes, writes, It didn't take long for me to conclude that the truth or falsity of all world religions and the ultimate meaning of life itself comes down to just one key issue. Did Jesus or did he not return from the dead? The answer to that fundamental question would settle everything. Indeed, Jesus is either a dead man or a risen savior. Your faith and mine hinge on which of those is true. 2000 years of church history hangs in the balance. The promises of God are either all true or all false, it all comes down to the resurrection. Now for most of our time today, we're gonna assume the truth of the resurrection because our goal in this series is to dial in on Christology, the study of the person and work of Jesus Christ. I want us to look at what he has accomplished for us by his resurrection. But let's also briefly do some work to establish the truth of a risen savior. Now, before we look at evidence for the resurrection, let me point out that Jesus predicted both that he would die and that he would rise again. And he did this multiple times in both veiled and plain language. For example, in Matthew 12, and then later again, in Matthew 16, he says this to his disciples. Then some of the scribes and teachers answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, He'll be dead for three days, but then he'll be raised to life. And he preaches a better word than Jonah, not just repentance for sins, but also the good news of salvation and eternal life in his name. Let's look at another example in John 2. In this passage, Jesus is standing near the physical temple, but he is meaningfully talking about himself when he is questioned again by the religious leaders. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. It's ironic then that in Matthew 27, while Jesus hung on the cross, he was mocked for those very words that he said. And over his head they put in put the charge against him which read This is Jesus the king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him one on the right and one on the left and those who passed by derided him wagging their heads and saying You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in 3 days save yourself if you are the son of God come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him saying He saved others he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God, let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. These guys had no idea what was about to happen. Even his disciples who had heard him say it over and over again didn't quite grasp the way in which Jesus, the Messiah, the true king of God's kingdom was going to overcome the world. Jesus had to die. And not only did he know that and predict that, he also knew it wouldn't be the end of the story. In John 10, Jesus said, I lay down my life, that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. His death marked the end of his life as a man on this earth, but it certainly didn't end his life. He was buried for three days, and then he rose, just as he said. And all four of the gospel counts testify to the resurrection, Jesus taking up his life again. So here are some facts as evidence for the resurrection. First, the tomb was discovered empty by a group of women on Sunday after he died. And they were shocked to see the stone roll away and find the tomb empty. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record that an angel told them that Jesus had risen and to go tell the other disciples. And that leads us to the second fact, which is two disciples, Peter and John, also saw the empty tomb. Third fact, over the next 40 days, the risen Jesus was seen by many disciples, and not just the 12. Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians 15 when he said, For I have delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture, Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Now notice here that Paul mentions that most of those witnesses were still alive when he wrote this letter. Go ask them, he's telling anyone who doubts. And finally, the fourth fact for the resurrection is that through the proclamation of the resurrection, the church grew and it grew a lot over and over again the disciples testified to the risen savior in the book of acts. Peter's first sermon in acts 2 boldly announces Christ's resurrection and 3000 people believe. Then 5000 more in acts 4 and on and on it goes. He says with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. The power of the risen savior, it was moving many people from curious listeners to repentant believers and the church multiplied. And then Peter, Paul, James, John, they all wrote the New Testament letters to these new and growing churches. And they wrote with the assumption that the resurrection is true. Every word declares the good news of a risen Savior. And the entire message of the final book of the Bible, Revelation, it centers on the victorious risen Savior who will come again. So the historical, scriptural, and testimonial evidence for the resurrection is solid. I know that was just a really brief overview of some of the evidence, and there's so much more that you can read and study if you're interested. Apologists and historians like Lee Strobel and N.T. Wright have done really good work in this area. But let me sum up the fact of the resurrection with this quote from theologian Wayne Grudem. He says, Jesus is a living, reigning Savior who is now the exalted head of the church, who is to be trusted, worshipped, and adored, and who will someday return in power and great glory to reign as King. Over the earth. So praise God, Jesus lives. That's good news. That's the gospel. Now, we all know that since the fall in Genesis 3, God's been on this rescue mission to rescue his people, right? He's been writing a redemption story, and Jesus is the climax. He's the fulfillment. He's the holy Son of God, and He's the sinless Son of Man. He's the miracle working Messiah, the promised King of an upda- upside down kingdom, and He died as the perfect sacrifice. But that's not all. And so our big idea today is this. The story isn't finished. Not only can we look back at the manger, and not only can we look back at the life of Christ, not only can we look back at the cross, and not only can we marvel at the empty tomb, but because that tomb is empty and because Jesus walked out of the grave, we can look forward with hope and we can stand unshaken even today. Theologians describe this by talking about the twofold state of Christ and that is his humiliation and his exaltation. In his humiliation, he came as the incarnate son of God. He suffered, died, and was buried. And in his exaltation, we we see this in his resurrection, his ascension, his seated at the right hand of God and in his future return. And so the story isn't finished. It doesn't end over here with humiliation and death. In fact, it doesn't end at all. This is the story of eternal life and the key to that life rests in a risen savior. So let's take the rest of our time today to unpack the certainties of life in light of Jesus' resurrection. And there are four things we can be sure and certain of. So first, because of the resurrection, we can be sure that Jesus is who he says he is. Not only did he predict that he would die and rise again, he made many claims about himself and his mission. So if the resurrection is real and certain, then so are all the other things that he said about himself. And that means that you and I, we need to be paying close attention. We can choose to believe him or not, but he gets the final word. So here's just a real short list of some of the claims that Jesus made about himself. Starting with the seven I am statements from John's Gospel. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the true vine. What else did Jesus claim? We claim to have the power to forgive sins and that he was one with the heavenly father. He claimed to have authority over the house of God and so much more. And now I realize that, well, some of Jesus' words and claims are not always easy. Like we'll find great comfort when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, but then you might find yourself struggling when he makes the exclusive claim to be the only means of salvation, right? When he says I'm the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the father except through me, that's hard. The famous trilemma of C.S. Lewis helps us wrestle with these absolute claims that Jesus made about himself. C.S. Lewis says, A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. The Pharisees, they thought that he was a lunatic or demon possessed, and they refused to believe his words. And Jesus told them, if I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, Even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. All the miracles, all the signs, all those divine works of Jesus proved what he said about himself. And his greatest work, the final of John's seven miraculous signs, was Jesus' own resurrection from the dead. This sealed the deal, confirmed every work he had done and every word he had spoken. Because of the resurrection, we can be sure that Jesus is who he says he is. Second, because of the resurrection, we can be sure that we receive a not guilty verdict. Listen, you and I, we are guilty. If you think anyone is somehow good enough or living without sin, listen to the Apostle Paul. He says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want. But the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I think that's a really good summary of who all of us are. We're wretched men and women. We're greedy and selfish, and we're telling little white lies and calling our sinful indulgences guilty pleasures. But calling sin by another name doesn't change what it is, and it's ugly, and it's our biggest problem, remember? So, who will deliver us? Well, Paul answers his own question. and We dug into that last week. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, he delivers us. And again, it's his resurrection that seals the deal. This is the theological idea of justification. It's a legal term simply defined as guilty sinners declared forgiven and righteous through the righteousness of Christ. So then rather than you and I be condemned for our sin, we're forgiven. Because the work of Christ was sufficient to secure our pardon. He fully paid our penalty. And so as God approves of Christ's sacrifice, he approves of us. We were guilty and now we're not guilty. Christ's righteousness makes us righteous in God's sight. This is why Paul states plainly that Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. That's some really good news for wretches like you and me. If we were to walk into God's courtroom without Jesus, we have absolutely no hope of mercy. But through the death and the resurrection of Jesus, by faith, we believe, as Paul says, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And this means that we must be clear about the resurrection, the fact of it, because without it, our faith has no solid foundation. Remember Paul's words, what he said to those people who were doubting? He said, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, And you are still in your sins. And so because of the resurrection, we can be sure that Jesus is who he says he is and that we receive a not guilty verdict. Third, we can be sure that we have new life. Now, there's both a physical and a spiritual component to this new life that we have in Christ. And there's a now component as well as a not yet component. So let's spend some, some time unpacking this. First, the physical component. Physically, we're still in these aging bodies that will sicken and die. Now, like the bleeding woman or the blind man or the leper, we may experience the miracle of healing now, and some of us may live for a very long time, like my great-grandma, who is 100 years old. But one day, one day this body's gonna die. And that's true of 100% of men and women, even Jesus. His physical body died on that cross. But unlike us, he walked up out of that grave on his own power, and when he was raised to life, He wasn't restored to his old body, but to a body that was made perfect through his triumph over death. And he wasn't like a ghost either. We have a record of him eating and drinking with the disciples after the resurrection. And they even reached out to touch him. Paul says that Jesus is the first fruits of a new life for humans. And the term first fruits, it's this metaphor from agriculture that indicates that we will be harvested like Christ. In other words, just as he was raised with a new body, we will also be given new and perfect bodies. Back to 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, and by a man has also come resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at the coming of those who belong to Christ. Those verses remind us that the story isn't finished. The story of your life doesn't end with this physical body that hurts, this body that gets sick, this body that wrinkles and aches. Your story isn't finished. And one day, one day you're going to be strolling around in heaven with a new and perfect body. And that's something to look forward to. But more than just physical, your new life in Christ is also spiritual. Paul writes, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Now, I've got this image in my mind, and it's not a perfect metaphor, but go with me for a moment. I'm picturing two different dressing rooms, and in the first one, there's like this 365 degree, you know, room full of mirrors, and it's got great lighting, and so you get to see every wrinkle and every gray hair and all the flaws. And every day you walk into that room, what you see is getting worse. You're breaking down. You might be investing hundreds of dollars in all the anti-aging regimens and workout plans, but you can't stop the inevitable, right? Now, in the second dressing room, there are also mirrors, but somehow these are reflecting your inner life, your heart and soul and mind, your love, your patience, your kindness, but also your selfishness and impatience and hypocrisy. So unlike the first room, the we'll call it the aging room, when you come into this second room every day, You can actually see growth and renewal and good changes. And so while your hope for your dying physical body is in this future resurrection and receiving a new body, your hope for your spiritual life is both future and present. Author Brett McCracken writes, the answer to a broken self is not just a reconceived self. It's a new self. It's crucifying the old self. It's losing our life to find it. Not on our own terms, but on Christ. And not for our own glory, but for his. The theological term for this is sanctification. This is the process that makes us more and more free from sin and more and more like Christ. And this has a now and a not yet quality to it. We are now free from sin, true. We can overcome our sin, but we are not yet without sin. We have the power of Jesus in us through the Holy Spirit, but we don't yet live perfect lives. This is why Paul will write, You have put off the old self with its practices and have put on a new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Note what he says there, being renewed. is a present participle, meaning it's actively happening right now, but we're not all the way there yet. But if we're surrendered to Jesus and if we're following him, if we're listening to the voice of the good shepherd and allowing his spirit to lead us, we can walk into that second room of mirrors and see how the old self is diminishing and the new self is being renewed. So even as my gray hairs are increasing, I pray that my selfish nature is decreasing. And when I feel a new ache in my back, I pray that I also feel more compassion for others. I know that the wrinkles and the sagging are increasing exponentially. But I also know that someday in heaven, I'm going to run and jump and play volleyball better than I ever did even in college. I'm looking forward to that. What I don't want is for my impatience to exponentially increase. I don't want my blind spots to remain hidden and growing in this life. I want that 365-degree mirror, which is lit up by the light of Jesus, shining on the inside of me and lighting up all those dark places, purging, renewing, reprioritizing, reordering, remaking me, more and more in the image of him the outside of me not really going to get any better over the coming days months and years but the inside can and this sanctification process becoming more like christ it's something that we must earnestly work toward it's actually part of our mission statement at grace that we will be fully devoted followers of jesus christ this is a lifetime of work a lifetime of being paul knew this was going to be a long process when he wrote to the philippian church he said, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So while we press on and move forward, and live every day seeking to be more and more like Jesus, we live in this tension of now and not yet. It keeps us humble, and it keeps us hopeful. It keeps our eyes fixed on Jesus, who's the author and perfecter of our faith. So be encouraged wherever you are in this sanctification process, your story isn't finished. So because of the resurrection, we can be sure that Jesus is who he says he is, and that we receive a not guilty verdict, and that we have new life. And finally, we can be sure that, well, we have a job to do. This new life in Christ, this long process of sanctification, it's not only for ourselves. Yes, it's to bring glory to Christ. Yes, it's because he empowers our new life to do his work. Paul devotes the entire chapter of 1 Corinthians 15 to explaining the resurrection of Christ and its significance for believers. And how does he conclude? He concludes with this word, therefore. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers. So in other words, he's saying, in light of the resurrection, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Let's break this down into three parts. First, Paul says, be steadfast. Other translations say, be strong or stand firm. Paul's saying that the fact of the resurrection of Jesus and the fact of your future resurrection in heaven are certain. And therefore, you have hope, a hope you can stand firm on, a hope that you can hold on tightly to, a hope that makes, even you, that makes you steadfast even when you don't know what tomorrow will bring. The second thing he says is be immovable. Again, in the face of the, res, the fact of the resurrection and the fact of your future resurrection, that means that you don't need to be swayed and knocked down when life gets hard. Remember what Jesus said? In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart for I have overcome the world. And yes, he has. He's overcome evil and sin and death, and he is the immovable rock and nothing can shake him. Do you remember that old game Red Rover? I'm pretty sure it's like illegal these days, but remember how it worked? Kids lined up on both sides of the playground and t- took turns yelling, Red Rover, Red Rover, let Polly come over. And everyone who was chanting held hands and Polly ran full speed and tried to break through the line on the other side. Well, Listen, when you put your faith in Jesus and when you grab onto his mighty hand, when you have faith that he is who he says he is, the risen Savior, the ma- no matter who or what is running at you full speed, your faith is not shaken. Nothing gets by Jesus. And so armed with the certainty of Christ's perfect sacrifice and risen life, we're steadfast in hope and immovable in faith. But that's not all because your story's not done there. There's work to do. Paul says that we must always be abounding in the work of the Lord. Jesus made it clear that his followers must continue his mission. Sharing the good news of his life and death and resurrection with all people. Because forgiveness and salvation are found only in Jesus. You know this and everyone you know needs to know it too. Just like the apostles in Acts, they were filled up with the spirit to tell the story of the resurrection savior. And we must tell his story with our lives and our work, with our hands, with our words. Like Derek said a couple of weeks ago, we are agents of the kingdom of God here and now. And his story isn't finished, which means your story isn't finished. The mission looks like you and I and the whole church reaching a lost world so that we can stand together, steadfast, immovable, and proclaiming in the name of Jesus, our risen Savior, O death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Now, your next steps today are just these three commands from Paul in 1 Corinthians 15.58. So first, be steadfast in hope. Second, be immovable in faith, and third, abounding in the Lord's work. The story of a risen Savior isn't finished because your story is still being written. And so what does Jesus want to write for you? How will your life and your heart and your hands and your feet continue his story? While you ponder that, let me close with this prayer from the Book of Common Prayer. O God, our King, by the resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, on the first day of the week, you conquered sin, put death to flight, and gave us the hope of everlasting life. Redeem all our days by this victory, forgive our sins, banish our fears, make us bold to praise you and to do your will, and steel us to wait for the consummation of your kingdom on the last great day. Through the same Lord, Jesus Christ, amen.